When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Slate Culture Gap Fest is brought to you by Prudential's 4040 Vision, a multimedia microsite exploring what life and the future looks like to today's 40-somethings. Hear what inspires real people, the hopes they have for tomorrow, and much more. See yourself in their stories at slate.com slash 4040 vision slash family. And by Making a Murderer, an unprecedented new documentary that takes viewers inside a high-stakes criminal case where reputation is everything and things are never as they appear. All episodes now streaming only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. I'm Stephen McAffin. This is the Slate Culture Gap Fest. We forced you to call us edition. It's Wednesday, December 30th, 2015. On today's show, Star Wars The Force Awakens is leaving no block unbusted on its way to being the most successful thing of all time. But in addition to being the most successful thing of all time, it's also a movie, they tell me. It's directed by J.J. Abrams. It stars Daisy Ridley and Oscar Isaac and John Boyega. In addition to the timeless troika of Mark Hamill, Carrie Fisher, and Harrison Ford, we will discuss it. And then it's our annual call-in show. You phoned us up with some questions, and we're now going to attempt to answer them uh, fairly off the cuff, I think. Joining me today is Slate's editor, Julia Turner. Hello, Julia. Hi, Steve. And, uh, of course, Slate's uh, film critic, Dana Stevens. Hey, Dana. Hey, Steve. Everyone have a nice uh, deity, unspecific uh, holiday? <laughs> My vague secu- period of jollity. My secular celebrations were quite enjoyable. Yes, mm. <laughs> Julia's robot family greatly enjoyed <laughs> consuming mass quantities. We gathered around the hearth. <laughs> oh, I love it. Um all right, Julia, before we dig in, do we have uh, do we have business today? No, but just to tease that we're going to reserve at least one of our listener questions for Slate Plus. One listener emailed in to ask us if we meditate daily, much less meditate at all. So we will be answering that question and perhaps a few more in Slate Plus. Fantastic. All right, let's dig right in. Star Wars The Force Awakens is the seventh installment in the space epic famously inaugurated some 40 years ago by George Lucas. It reunites uh, the three most iconic members of the original cast. By way, I think, uh, Dana, starting with you, as something of an apology for the trilogy whose last installment was about 10 years ago and was widely regarded as something of a failure and a joke, this one really attempts to hit some of the very familiar high notes of the original while going in some interesting and new directions. So I'm very curious to know, Dana, what did you think of it? First of all, Steve, I just have to say it's very generous to conceive of this as an apology for the early 2000s prequels, given that those were all done by George Lucas and and the the franchise was essentially taken away from him, bought by Disney and given to to a herd of other directors. So if there is an apology going on, the apology is not coming from the person who committed the offense of making those three terrible movies. But I think that it is true that except for very, very hardcore Star Wars nerds and apparently children, no one likes those early 2000s movies. And we we all sort of want to brush them under the rug and forget that they ever happened. In fact, there was a funny post on Slate's culture blog about different people giving advice about what order to watch the movies in. Now that they've been renumbered by Lucas so that, you know, essentially they go four, five, six, one, two, three, seven, right? Yes. Mm. And uh, I guess my answer would be, I would be with the group, and there is a grouping in, of, of people questioned that say, just watch the first three, watch this one, and you know, forget all about the others, unless you really need to know about trade routes during Anakin Skywalker's early childhood. <laughs> um, but I think like most people who walked into this new Star Wars, I walked out pretty happy. I mean, you can't deny that like J.J. Abrams' two Star Trek installments that he directed, there's something synthetic feeling about this. There's a feeling that he's 
He's very skillfully synthesized some sort of chemical essence of Star Wars and delivered it to us. And it's not quite the same thing as being back there in the early 70s and early 80s when those first three movies were coming out. But it's close enough that it captures the spirit. It's certainly a fun two plus hours of the movies. It does a lot of interesting things with the franchise that I think needed to be done in terms of, you know, some of the accusations of racism and sexism that have come at the Lucas series in the past. And we can get into those. But um, yeah, I would say it's, it's, it's a rollicking good time. It does not reinvent the genre of Star Wars. Hmm. Julia, what's, uh, what's your relationship to this franchise? I'm curious, and, and in the context of that, to this latest uh, iteration. I uh, did not watch them as a child. Then my senior year in high school, watched all three in a row in an all-night screening of the original ones. This was before the newish ones came out. All night in the theater? No, like in my friend's living room. Then saw the first of the new ones in the theater, skipped two and three, and that's it. So I have no romantic childhood Han Solo crush or, you know, I feel like my whole third grade was like people on the playground, like playing pretend of Ewoks and whatever the hell and vying to be Leia. And I just was like left out and and standing sadly by being like, what What are they doing with their hair? What's happening? Um, (laughs) So I have no deep sentimental attachment or kind of graven memory of the originals, but I did actually rewatch the original episode four, whatever the hell we're supposed to call it now, uh, over vacation. And I was amazed by how much this movie is really just a beat for beat remake of mm-hmm. that movie, essentially. I mean, it's it does take place in the future in the world. It's not technically a remake, but... Or the past. Isn't Star Wars all actually in the past? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away? I literally have never noticed those words. But it's actually <laughs> quite difficult to read in that iconic slant, and I find that the, like, it is difficult to extract meaning from that particular visual technique, although it was exciting. I did find myself weirdly kind of like tearing up when the Star Wars logo appeared on screen when I watched the movie this morning, despite having no particular emotional attachment That's to what J.J. Abrams is good at doing. He manages to deploy the stuff that was already there, right? The mm-hmm. Buck Rogers-style crawl of letters and the, the John Williams swell of music that's all been there for 40 years and, and re-trigger those emotions with yeah. it. Well, it, made you, it makes you think how, in some ways, Dana, how low the bar really was and how kind of poignant and, and melancholy it was that George Lucas couldn't clear it with that second trilogy. So with the bar set very low, what you needed, all you needed really to do was to go through all the stations of the Star Wars cross somewhat faithfully and people would have their nostalgic catharsis seeing the new movie, which they did. It was very well done. Uh, I'm not trying to naysay it in any way. But the one thing I will say, Dana, I'm curious what your reaction to this is, is that I now have an appreciation for what the genius of Lucas was and, and also his you know um, friend and colleague on, uh, on uh, the Raiders movie, uh, Spielberg, is that they were absolute geniuses at conducting a large-scale action sequence in which the viewer, neither the viewer nor the plot ever got lost. And then the thing about Star Wars is the uh, original one, you know, now called episode four or whatever, is it delivered this emotional climax of the exploding of the Death Star that brought everyone up out of their seats. I thought J.J. Abrams did a very, very, very good and faithful job of delivering a terrific, crowd-pleasing Star Wars. I don't think he has that same total genius with a large set-piece action sequence that arrives at an emotional climax that Lucas did. And so what I found interesting about this movie is that everyone was totally immersed completely into it, and they failed to have the climactic catharsis at the end of the movie and it felt like a gateway to the next one. That was the only disappointment for me. Yeah, I mean, I think Forrest Wickman pointed out on Slate that the final sequence of the film, which we don't have to get too far into the particulars in this segment, but the classic way that a Star Wars movie ends is they you know, there's a big battle between the good guys and the bad guys and there's a cataclysm and one side wins and then you sort of see you know, a shot of the moment after and then it ends. And in this, our hero Ray, played by Daisy Ridley, goes on and begins another quest. So you you sort of are, are getting, it's like when you get a airport thriller and, and chapter one of the next book is kind of tucked in the back at the yeah, end of the I first book. The ending is a little too obvious of a tease for the next movie. And another thing Forrest pointed out, which I hadn't realized about the earlier Star Wars movies, is that, is that, is that they all end with a celebration. They tend to end on some sort of scene of, of group joy, you know, and especially the, the last three of the trilogy. What was it? The Ewok one, Return of the... 
Jedi? I don't know. (laughs) Sith of the, yes, I'm getting a thumbs up from our producer. Return of the Jedi is the correct title. Ends with this joyous celebration. And and it seems like that is maybe a, a more... That's just a more Star Wars-y ending than, than this, um, this later on Marvel franchise era come back and see the next movie ending, which is a little bit of mm-hmm. a letdown. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm like, I ride for J.J. Abrams because I loved Alias, which is sort of where he made his bones. It was this kind of charming TV show. It was one of his early projects, and it was an original project um, about this girl super spy. It was very silly. It was kind of in the Buffy camp where there was a lot of mythology and a lot of costumes and a lot of wisecracking and a love story and it was great. But I feel like since then he's sort of become like a hyper competent Hollywood mercenary. Like he keeps, you know, flying his X-Wing fighter into these like narrow passes that are difficult to shoot and he shoots them. Like I walked out of that first Star Trek movie and was like, wow, what a fun movie. And then I have never thought about it for a moment since and it has all melted away in my mind like a snowflake on a on a hot plate. And this movie, it's a really interesting choice to just completely ape the structure of the original. We start with a kind of a lone figure stuck on a sand planet. Uh, then we encounter an esteemed starship. Then we, you know, go, there's some uh, droid that has a crucial bit of information and the people want the droid and, plot. you know, it's all... The same plot, even the costuming, there are callbacks. Like when we first meet uh, Ray, the central character played by Daisy Ridley, she almost looks like one of the sand people in the first movie. In any event, I'm not sure I'm using the right terminology. There's so many callbacks that you feel like, why is this hyper-competent and interesting director, what's he doing, like making this simulacrum? Like the great achievement of Star Wars was creating this whole crazy universe pastiche, whatever, that took timeless themes but created a world that felt new. And so that seems strange. On the other hand... What the movie does really amazingly, and I think quite deliberately and probably very smartly, as a bridge to this whole, you know, however many of these movies Disney, I mean, I think we're going to be watching and talking about these motherfuckers for the next decade, because Disney's going to milk this thing dry. It reset the racial and gender balance of the universe in a way that was so satisfying. I mean, I'm not someone who, you know, Laura Bradley, one of our writers, wrote about she was one of the people in those playground games of Star Wars vying to be one of the Leias, because that was the only option for you if you were a female Star Wars fan. Rey is a badass. She's great. She's really a very wonderful hero. And she's clearly been anointed in the film to be the next Luke, to be the next central, young, struggling, unformed figure, the Harry Potter, the Luke, the whatever, the chosen one. I mean, just we actually we can pause for a moment here to hear Rey in action. I think the clip we have is uh, Ray and Finn running to escape something toward a ship, and we we hear her demonstrating her hypercompetence in their shouted, hasty dialogue. Ah! Ah! We cannot run them. We might in that quad jumper. Hey, we need a pilot. We've got one. You. Ah! The force stirs within her, and she how can she, whatever, reckon with it? It's, it's, that plot line is laid out for her. And it's just great. It's great to have that be a woman. And it's great also that one of her key sidekicks is this character, Finn, who's a stormtrooper who rejects his given role as a stormtrooper. I mean, to me, to humanize, I, I, I recognize that somewhere in the earlier movies you do see under the masks of the bad guys sometimes, but to humanize a stormtrooper felt kind of revolutionary to me. I agree. I think that that was actually, that was one of the moments where that J.J. Abrams synthesis that you're talking about, his ability to ape other directors' styles, right? Which is, I think, why he gets hired for all these things. He could do Spielberg in Super 8. He could do... Well, see, Super 8 was his effort to do his own thing, I think. But but very, very citational, right, of those those Spielberg early 80s movies. Anyway, I, I feel like he is a channeler of other directors' styles, at least on film as opposed to TV, more than a stylist in and of himself. But that wasn't what I initially wanted to respond to. Oh, it was that I really think that this movie's great moral innovation is that early moment when Finn, the character played by John Boyega, takes off his stormtrooper mask and we see the face beneath, right? I mean, we not only see the face beneath, but we see a black man's face, which has not been a big part of the Star Wars universe. There was Lando Calrissian, who was sort of a helpmate back in the day, but he was not a major player. He wasn't one of the main heroes. And and just the idea of, of unmasking this stormtrooper and having it not be a faceless, marching, you know, glossy white Nazi, but having it be like a, a suffering, conflicted person underneath, I thought was, was really well telegraphed. Well, and essentially a slave, as you point out in your review. Right. There's some sort of implication, and this is a slight spoiler alert, I guess, but there's some sort of implication for the first time that I know of in the Star Wars universe that the stormtroopers are all 
like foundlings that have been taken from their families and brought up in some sort of horrible military environment, right? Which gives you a whole different feeling about these marching lines of white masked people. Right. Mm. That they're hum- they're hyper-militarized humans as opposed to kind of like game pieces, which is what they feel like in, in some of the original movies, was striking. So in a way, what Abrams has done is this incredibly loving, detailed homage that gives you the satisfying moments. It gives you the shot of the Millennium Falcon. It gives you Han Solo. It gives you Leia. It gives you Chewie. All of the, you know, it gives you lightsabers, all of the original, you know, moments that that for me sparked just having rewatched the movie last week. But I'm sure if you watch the movie, tens of hundreds of times and, you know, intoned its lines on the playground were even more deeply satisfying to see. It gave you all of that and yet invested the movie with this totally new spirit of 40 years later, who gets to be a hero and who gets to be conflicted and who gets to be human and who gets to be more than a sidekick. I thought it was really powerful. And I think, you know, the series is set up to have Ryan Johnson, who's the very interesting director behind Brick and Looper, direct the next one. And he's not an aper of anybody. He's such a, I think, directorial original with a very specific voice and movie makes movies that feel quite distinctive that in a way maybe this is like a pivotal puzzle piece that needed to happen which is it revives Mm -hmm. the franchise it brings you back it brings a new type of hero into it and revives the excitement and now maybe it actually can go in a new direction that doesn't feel like a sad Jar Jar Binks tax law filled (laughs) misbegotten Mm -hmm. byway. Julie, I totally agree. There is something about directing the first of this third installment in this third trilogy that's both getting the ball on the one yard line and a thankless task. I mean, if you, you cannot meddle with people's sense of nostalgia, especially after the middle trilogy being such a botch job. So you're forced in a way to move through these nostalgic rhythms in order to deliver something that's actually going to satisfy audiences. And J.J. Abrams really did that. And I do think it's a, it's a stepping stone to possibly something more unexpected in the second one, which, you know, which is an exciting thought. But Dana, you see a lot of these movies, you take the point, right, that there is an enormous amount of uh, nostalgia that big-budget Hollywood writers and directors have to be dealing with in order to bring large audiences into old franchises. Right, and that nostalgia plays a particularly tactical role, of course, in this re, whatever you want to call it, reawakening of the force and of the of the franchise. And to that effect, it's worth noting that, Steve, you talked about Raiders of the Lost Ark earlier. Lawrence Kasdan, who co-wrote Raiders of the Lost Ark, and also co-wrote I believe it was the second, The Empire Strikes Back, of the of the first trilogy, and, you know, is, is, is just sort of an old school collaborator from those 70s, 80s years, was one of the co-writers on this project. And I think you hear some of that in the way that he writes, particularly the old characters from the original trilogy. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, the movie is The Force Awakens, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh, you've already seen it, no doubt. But what you haven't done is told us what you thought about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. Please do. We'd love to hear it. All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast we talk about our sponsor. Julia, what do we have? This week, we are sponsored by Prudential. Today's 40-somethings are charting their own courses, sometimes by choice, but many times out of necessity. Caring for aging parents, starting new careers midlife, juggling today's financial realities with planning for retirement, and much more. Prudential's 4040 vision brings these challenges and others into sharper focus through real-life interviews and commentary from 40-somethings, plus a compelling four-part podcast on first-time parenthood in your 40s with radio and television personality Faith Saley. Be sure to experience it all at slate.com slash 4040vision slash family. All right. Well, now is that uh, time of year where we uh, take phone calls from our listeners and uh, respond to your questions. Dana, do you want to kick us off here? Sure. I think we're going to start with one that didn't come in the form of a phone call, but of an email. This is from David Foreman, who is a longtime friend of the GabFest, I should mention, and who has given me in the past a couple of wonderful endorsements for the show. So thanks for this great question, David. Here it goes. If you could take your time machine back to witness the initial creation or performance of any cultural event, what would it be? This one is so interesting to me because... Like watching an art, it basically is a bias towards performance-based art, right? Like going, I guess, I guess to stand behind Turner while he was daubing light onto his canvases could have been interesting, or Van Gogh, or you know, to check out how that Mona Lisa smile got noodled around with a fine brush. Uh, but the creation of art is not that. Well, performance is another. You could be at a Shakespeare play in the Globe Theater. That sounds good. Or like the Sistine Chapel when it was getting daubed. I'm very into watching painting. Julia wants to watch painting. That to me is like it's watching paint dry. Literally watching paint dry. (laughs) It's watching paint still wet. I don't know. I don't have a ready answer for this. Steve, what do you what do you want to go see? 
Well, I mean, I can give a kind of cop-out answer, which is I would have loved to have been at the Village Vanguard on the Sunday when Bill Evans recorded that record. I mean, something that ex post facto becomes to seem as if it were etched in eternity and extracted from eternity. But in fact, it was just something that happened in that particular moment and happened to be recorded for posterity. But something... Uh, along those lines, it would have been great to have been in Berlin to see the Beatles when they were still very raffish, sloppy, drunk, and um, taking requests from GIs in the audiences. I think that would have been an, just an astonishing thing to see them. They were so achingly young and they were not good yet. So that's a couple. Uh, being in the Globe Theater, as Dana says, of course, would have been just to see how these things that have entered into common consciousness were first performed and reacted to? I mean, what would it be like to be at the very first performance of Hamlet? Another one would be, what would it have been like to have seen the Oristia, you know, to really go back to the moment when human consciousness is making forms that then become a permanent part of the repertoire of human performance. Oh, yeah. Can you go back and hear a big, like, listen to a bard perform a Homer? Like, mm-hmm. Well, right. That would be another one where you could you solve... You need an automatic a, translator. Yeah. You, right. You could solve an eternal mystery of how many Homers were there. Was it... How You know, could it, could I sol- could we solve that one? Could the Gabfest, like Bill and Ted, could we, the Gabfest <laughs> have an... Could we have an excellent adventure and see the evolution of the Iliad and the Odyssey? Was it one person, which seems highly unlikely, but over how many eons did it develop? I mean, there are a lot of pretty good ones here. Yeah. You'd have to, you'd have to plug a lot of dates into that time machine to figure out the Homer question. I can't wait till we get a time machine. I hear Panoply's working on it for us. <laughs> I mean, I have at least two very specific fantasies in relation to this question that I have sat and longed to be alive for things that, I mean, Shakespeare at the Globe would, of course, be one of them, but two others that I can think of. When I listen to Bach organ or piano pieces, I think about the fact that in his lifetime, Bach was mainly known not as a composer, but as a virtuoso organist. And people would come mm. from all around, come from all over Germany to hear this guy improvise. He was like the jazz improv guy of his day. <laughs> and so these things that are set down for us now in stone because he wrote them down were probably played completely differently with different you know, ornamentations or whatever. And so the idea of going and just listening to Johann Sebastian Bach just jam out at the at the church organ in context again with like all the you know village who came to hear him, that is something that I'm really sad. I can't travel back in time to do. And another, I think, as a lot of our listeners know, I'm currently researching this book on Buster Keaton. And Buster Keaton got his start in his childhood as vaudeville performer. His family had a vaudeville act, which largely consisted of his father hurling him across the stage and off the stage and into scenery. It was one of the most violent acts in vaudeville. And I've been going back and reading a lot of contemporary descriptions of this act and kind of newspaper bills and vaudeville bills describing it. And I would love so much to travel back in time. There's no film footage of it, although film did exist at that time. It was very new. And I would just love to see that act, see what they actually did that audiences love so much and that made their work so popular and and try to create some kind of trajectory between that and what he did later on film. So those are two specific time travel fantasies for you, David Foreman. Mm. All right, Julia, let's uh, let's move it forward. What uh, what other question do we have? This is another one that came via email, although we do have some voicemail questions later in the show. Also, weirdly, the only question from a woman. I, our, our women listeners need to take a cue from Daisy Ridley and start... Uh, they're off piloting starships. They have yeah, no time to leave voicemails. They're too busy, uh, you know, waving their lightsabers around. Uh, but Hannah Bacon wrote in with a smart question. I was wondering if you could discuss the recent Solnit Lolita dust-up. Are there texts that you would encourage people to not read for the reasons she lists? Do you agree with the diagnosis that the misogyny of these must-read lists is dangerous insofar as art does have such an impact on people's ability or inability to empathize? And I should zoom out here a bit because there are a lot of links to pertinent pieces here embedded. So for those of our listeners who have not followed this, uh, Rebecca Solnit, the writer who, among other things, coined the phrase mansplaining, um, but has also written a number of wonderful books about wonderful things, wrote a piece in November critiquing an Esquire list of 80 books every man must read, which had 79 books on it written by men and one by Flannery O'Connor and included Lolita, some Beats, you know, some other broy bros. And she pointed out that such a list is absurd that treating great literature as though it is the province entirely of men and of male characters is absurd and that 
people should, of course, read whatever they want, but that Lolita, for example, is fundamentally a book about child rape. And if you are a woman and all the gray literature that you read is literature in which women are raped all the time and don't get to talk or do much, uh, that could take a toll on you as a person. And then apparently she was met with many fierce rejoinders of people saying she didn't understand the point of Lolita. The point of great literature is not to empathize with particular characters. If she would read Lolita again, she would get it. So then she wrote a second essay defending having denigrated Lolita on these terms of representation. I don't know. Was she as much denigrating Lolita as denigrating this Esquire list of of books that all men should read and Lolita's place on it? She wasn't fully denigrating Lolita, but she was defending the fact that she tossed off a line uh, in which she pointed out that the plot of Lolita isn't so great for the ladies. And whatever you think the point of Nabokov having inserted us all into the head of a pedophile for all those delectably Nabokovian pages was... Uh, it still is worth thinking about that mm. it's the story of a girl getting raped and we mm. don't and it's not even her story it's the story of her rapist and so that is something worth considering as you consider the canon what did you guys make of this dust up uh well if i could jump in very quickly i'll say i have a lot of sympathy for it as a response to the esquire list which is preposterous and if I think one reads properly, then within one's reading, Philip Roth and John Updike and certainly Dabakov can have their place. The problem is when books for boys come to completely overwhelmingly dominate one's reading and therefore one's worldview, or worse, one's worldview leads one only to certain kinds of male, you know, especially these mid-century, extremely male-oriented writers. But if one is also reading fill in the blank. I mean, everyone from uh, Jane Austen all the way up to Margaret Atwood and beyond, then these books can take their place in a, in a you know normal human being's literary diet. The point about Lolita, I do disagree with. I mean, and the funny thing is in her original blog post, she says that masterpiece of Humbert Humbert's failure of empathy, which is actually a beautiful way to describe what Lolita is about. I mean, Lolita is a toweringly moral work about Humbert Humbert's psychosis, you know, and his lack of empathy, which makes him a kind of psychotic. And it's not told from Lolita's point of view, but it's about how he's incapable of understanding that she has one. And it is, I mean, and this is not controversial interpretation of the book. Anyone reading the book intelligently will see it's about a human being's ability to blot out another human being's suffering. That's clearly what Nabokov is writing a book about. To do that, he inhabits the moral universe of a monster, but he fully understood he was within the moral universe of a monster. And he was exploring a side to his own personality, which was the use of literary genius as a kind of scrim with which to separate oneself from the suffering of the world. And so it's also a self-examination. So I, I, it's it's a, yet another baby I'm willing to cut in half. But Dana, what do you think? I mean, I think that it's somewhat of a straw man to, to take on this Rebecca Solnit argument from the point of view of how you read Lolita or what is the correct way to read Lolita. And it seems like it was it was mainly male commenters nitpicking her style of reading Lolita that caused her to write about the whole thing a second time. I think her larger point and more important point has to do with canonicity essentially has to do with the fact that the formation of literary canons, even if it's just by Esquire making a ridiculous list of 80 books that no man should miss that has one book by a woman on it, by the way, a Flannery O'Connor book, is a form of violence against readers in some way. You know, so so her last her last paragraph, I mean, she, she summarizes it beautifully. She says, I'd never said that we shouldn't read Lolita. I've read it more than once. I joke that there should be a list of books no woman should read because quite a few lionized books are rather nasty about my gender. But as Julia says, she also makes the claim everyone should read whatever they want. But then I just, I love the closing of her second essay, which I find very moving when she says, but I was serious about this. You read enough books in which people like you are disposable or are dirt or are silent, absent or worthless, and it makes an impact on you because art makes the world, because it matters and because it makes us or breaks us. So to me, her point in the end is, is a toweringly moral one too, which is, you know, there isn't any one counter list that's going to be the perfect antidote to this other bad list. It's it's more that the authority that makes these lists and what is left off of them creates a chain of readers who are left out and who continue to leave out others, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, one of the observations she makes in one of the two essays is that for interested readers who are not male or white or straight, 
the act of reading literature for decades has been an act of empathy and of, of code switching, of right? imagining yourself in the shoes of someone very different from yourself. And so the failure of imagination of this Esquire list, the fail, you know, the suggestion that to be a bro, you got to read more, you got to reinforce your white male broness by reading more white male bros being, you know, she also points out, I think that there's only one maybe gay author on it. I'm not sure she gets into race. That's just an absurd way to go about looking at the world. And, and I mean, I agree with you, Dana, that that closing passage of her essay lands very powerfully. But in some ways, I think the inverse of it is what is actually true. Like, I'm not sure reading reading a thousand Lolitas is the thing that damages you. I think it's the not reading of more diverse representations that is the real absence in literature. And, and you know, Lolita is a tough example because Nabokov is so undeniably brilliant and empathetic and interested in, in really philosophically and morally complex aspects of human nature that he uses language very specifically and beautifully to render. You know, a Henry Miller here, a beat poet there, like... I'm, I might be a little more happy to throw some of those dudes out the window mm-hmm. uh, on, on the theory that she suggests. But but to me, it's less leaving those people out and welcoming more people in. I mean, I think that this is why the new Star Wars movie felt so satisfying, right? It was It was rendering this world in this kind of classic, maybe not that complex, but deeply satisfying moral reckoning between light and dark and good and evil with a new set of heroes who felt more of our modern world. All right, just to let our listeners know where to go for this, it's Rebecca Solnit, and it's on lithub.com, and it's called 80 Books No Woman Should Read. I think uh, Google will get you there pretty expediently. And, of course, we'll, we'll stick the URL on our show page. All right, moving on. Next up, we have a question from Tyler. I am from the beautiful and diverse city of Arlington, Virginia. I have a question for Steve. Uh, one of my favorite segments on the show was when uh, Wesley Morris was on. And one question that sort of uh, interrupted the flow of the whole show was one about the perception of race and culture. And I guess my question is, what responsibility does a cultural gap that have to racial diversity? Does Slate see a problem in three middle-class white people giving their opinions on culture, would there be value in creating a more diverse cast? I love the show. I listen every week. Thanks. Well, this I can take this one first. This is such a good question, and it's one we get a version of over time. And in a way, I think it ties into the conversation we just had about the Rebecca Solnit piece, which is what is the responsibility of any publisher or editor to ensure that more diverse voices are represented in the work that we publish and produce? And then what is the responsibility of any given thing to be diverse in and of itself. And I think there's a great responsibility in the former and that Slate historically has not done a great job of including diverse voices over its 20-year history. And that's something we've gotten a lot better at in the last five years or so, but still aren't nearly good enough, I think. And we're you know, trying to make strides on that around the magazine and around our podcasts. And then there's the question of what you do when you're a show like ours, or I think the similar questions came up with Girls. Girls is a show about a bunch of self-centered white people in Brooklyn, and people were upset that it didn't have more racial representation and more diversity within its cast, but in some way, its hermetically sealed whiteness was part of the world it was about. You know, and I think there's a similar question about our show. In some ways, people who listen to our show come to hear us three middle-class white people talk. And it's a dynamic that we've had now for eight years. And there are absolute limitations to our perspective, right? We can only offer the views that we have. And those views are as interesting as they are. And they aren't more interesting. And they aren't more varied. And we bring in different voices of all kinds in terms of expertise, in terms of awareness of art or architecture or history or experience of, you know, being of a different ethnicity or a different sexuality than or a different religion than we represent on various occasions. But fundamentally, the show is about what we think. So should there be a culture podcast at Slate or somewhere that has more diverse voices on it? Yes. Should this specific show be disbanded because of its unbearable whiteness? Uh, we have opted for no. <laughs> um, my feeling on this, Julia, is that we now live in a super diversified media environment in which the you know popular mainstream is no longer mono, so monochromatic as it once was. Therefore, there's room for a niche product uh, that's a podcast hosted by three clueless, privileged white people. 
if we still lived in an era of three major television networks and a few major national newspapers and uh, on and on and on, uh, you know, a, 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 a very unitary corporate media that was overwhelmingly dominated by middle-aged white males, both in front of and behind the camera, then I would say by all means creating new products that are dominated by white voices of privilege is revolting. But you can listen to or not listen to our podcast. You can shuffle it in with so many other different voices and points of view. The one thing I would say is that for me, the real diversity issue in this day and age is a class issue more than it is along the other matrices of identity that now you, you know, you are seeing gender, racial, and ethnic diversity at an unprecedented degree, and hopefully more is coming. But class diversity is really still the final frontier in a way. I mean, that's a really interesting challenge in a way. Access to the media on the part of people who are otherwise socially or economically dispossessed, that's a very, very high hurdle. But whatever can be done to make that possible, to me, is the next frontier. Yeah, no, I think you're right, Steve, that strides have been made in a lot of areas, that class is, is another area where people need to keep pushing. And you're right that in a world where there are more than just three channels controlling all that everybody gets to see, hear, or consume, more different podcasts can blossom. On the other hand, it's a little bit rich for us to be like, yeah, so many voices, there's so many voices out there now, so ours is fine. I'm, but Julia, I got to push back on that. I mean, we live in an age where the dominant global youth culture of the last 30 years has been hip hop, you know? I mean, it's not like we just don't live in the same world that I grew up in the 1970s, where to be, you know, an individual with a voice meant you were a white male. I mean, there are just so many, compare the number of people who listen to our quite nicely successful podcast with the number of people who are consuming media by non-white voices. I just don't, I just no longer think that our conscience is the right one to agonize somehow. Well, I mean, the other, one other way to think about it is podcasting in general, like the internet 10 or 15 years ago, is a low barrier to entry medium that allows all kinds of things to blossom that's mostly free and uh, thus has let many different kinds of media bloom. I mean, in some ways, like if feet nerds talking nerdily about culture is also a kind of media that would not have found representation in a narrower media landscape, right? Like our kind of effete nerd wonkery or whatever you want to call what we do, um, you know, a bunch of PhDs and wannabes uh, doing close reads of culture for 45 minutes every week. That's also something that the media landscape of 20 years ago would not have supported and that podcasting supports and that the fact that the show remains interesting to us to do and interesting to listeners to listen to is its own defense of the work. But but it is tricky when you think about these questions of representation, like not not everything can be all things. On the other hand, I do feel like I've become increasingly aware over time, and I'm glad to have done so, of, of the degree to which our perspective is just that, our own perspective. It's our own cultural response, and it's a response that has whatever value of merit or insight we can bring to it. But I felt this way when we talked about Master of None. I mean, the most powerful pieces that I read about Master of None were the pieces by young South Asian people describing what it was like to see their f a family like theirs or an experience like theirs represented. And however fun it was for us to talk about that show and explain what we liked about it and its mechanism and your great theory about the anti-Seinfeld and, you know, all the rest of it. There's, there's plenty of things to say about that show that were interesting to me that we were able to say, but we were not able to get in a particularly deep way at the thing that was most revolutionary and exciting about it to a lot of its viewers and to me, but just to me in a refracted, reflected way. So that becomes a weakness of the show. And I think that's, that's just true. And it's okay. Something that I always think when this question comes up, and it's often a question at live shows after when people line up after the show, is, well, A, that person is absolutely right. We should probably have a person of color on our panel every week. And B, which of the three of us is going to drop out of the show so that that person can take our place? Because it ain't going to be me. <laughs> So I guess I can just beg that we be grandfathered in because we've been around and also refer that person to a great podcast among three people of different racial and ethnic backgrounds, which is called Our National Conversation About Conversations About Race. It's on Panoply. It stars Tanner Colby, who's a longtime podcast partner of mine on the spoiler specials, Baratunde Thurston and Raquel Cepeda. And they just get into it every week with, you know, whatever whatever topics to do with race, culture, ethnicity, gender are on the airwaves that week. It's great. 
Yeah, that show is a great listen. All right. Now is the moment in our podcast where we talk about our other sponsor, Julia Turner. What do we have? Our sponsor this week is the new Netflix series, Making a Murderer. More than a decade in the making, a new series exposes a real-life thriller set in America's heartland. Making a Murderer follows Stephen Avery, a man from the wrong side of the tracks, who was exonerated after serving 18 years in prison. His release triggered major justice reform legislation, and he filed a lawsuit that threatened to expose corruption in local law enforcement. Go behind the scenes with the directors of Making a Murderer on their companion podcast, now on iTunes, and watch all episodes on Netflix now. All right, on to a few more questions. Hi, I'm Daniel Pollock Pelsner from Portland, Oregon. I love the GabFest. It's the one thing that makes me wish my commute were longer, at least on Wednesdays. Here's my request. Could you talk a bit more about podcasts? We're in a golden, or at least a dawning age of podcasts, and even though you all come from written media, I'd love to hear you train your sensitivity to style and ideas on the form in which we, your adoring listeners, encounter you. Plus, it's easier for us, devoted but impoverished audiophiles, to get access to a podcast than to score a ticket to Hamilton, for instance, or visit the Oculus Rift. Thank you. Podcasting as a form. Have we never talked about podcasting as a form? I, I guess we talked about endorsed favorite podcasts and things like that. And we, but... I think we did Serial as a segment because we had to. But um, we actually commissioned the wonderful critic Jonah Weiner to answer this question when we did a special anniversary package on the 10th anniversary of podcasting last December, about a year ago. Uh, and Jonah wrote this fantastic essay about podcasting as a form and what its particular rhythms are. It was sort of like toward a critical theory of podcasting. And the most interesting thing he said was that one of the primary features of podcasting as it had evolved to that point, and I think it's still true, was comfort. It's a return relationship. There are kind of rhythms and expectations set. You like to hear Steve say, na-na-na-na at the beginning. Uh, if you're a fan of You Must Remember This, uh, you kind of trill to the rhythm of when she says, join me, won't you, at the beginning after her intro, and at the end when she says, edited by Karina Longworth, that's me. You know, you, you, you get these kind of little cadences and rhythms and this repeat relationship that is fundamentally comforting. And he raised the question at the end of his essay about what it means for a form, a, a, a critical form or an artistic form or a media form to be fundamentally have that comfort laced within it. And does that mean that it would be more difficult uh, within the form to raise challenging ideas or to kind of confront or surprise the listener in interesting ways? And I thought that was intriguing. I mean, I certainly, my, I podcasting sometimes feels like a drug to me. Like podcasts feel addictive and they feel uh, sometimes it feels like a habit that I wonder about the health of. I actually, I missed the show, Dana, where you talked about how you've taken up swimming as exercise and you were looking for ways to listen to something during swimming. Swimming is the only form of exercise that I truly adore. And I recently joined uh, a Y here in New York so that I could swim in the winter in the city. Uh, and when I swim, I count laps. Uh, and I, I just sort of like count the number of the lap that I'm on with every breath. I sort of repeat one, 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 two, 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 two. And it's a little blank and it's like the only unmediaized space <laughs> now because I listen to podcasts in the shower. I listen to podcasts while I'm walking to work. I started perhaps a advisedly listening to podcasts in one ear when I biked this summer, which is maybe dangerous, but I leave the other ear open and I have them on very quiet. I did lose one phone that way though. How uh, do you listen in the shower, but with what medium? Oh my God, I haven't talked about this on the show. This is like the greatest hack of my life. Uh, Ziploc bag. You just put your phone in a Ziploc bag. You can hear it through the bag. I haven't lost a phone yet. I've been doing it for four years. Just prop it in a soap dish and play it out loud. <laughs> I haven't, I like to have to take a shower without a podcast on feels like a, an utter waste. So I feel addicted and compelled in ways that I don't feel great about. And yet, like a Tuesday morning, you know, when John August and Craig Mazin post the latest uh, script notes, I love that show. I'm, I'm addicted to it. And I know what it sort of feels like to have the sense that you have these kind of virtual friends whose, whose conversation you're eavesdropping on regularly. And when people meet us and say, it's so weird. I feel like I know you. Congratulations on having your kids. I totally have that relationship with the podcast I listen to. So I'm, I'm aware of that aspect of the forum. Steve, what about you? Do you have, I recognize Julia's question about whether she has an addictive relationship to podcasts. I don't listen in the shower. And I think when I mentioned 
you know, a, a, a means of listening while swimming. I wasn't necessarily saying I wanted one, but just that, that the forms of exercise I do are sort of soundless by nature, you know, yoga and swimming, and I'm happy for them to remain that way. Um, but I guess I, I do sort of feel now like I want to be having an interesting conversation with somebody in my head at every possible moment. And <laughs> I've been known to um, go around the house doing my errands with an apron on, and in the apron pocket is the phone with the headphones. You know, it's sort of like the new housewife who has to be listening to her podcasts while she dusts all the time. I've totally done that. Steve, what about you? Do you, do you have the apron problem? So I do it in just an incredible amount of driving, chauffeuring kids to and from. And so um, I definitely need audio content, fresh audio content. And the truth is, I, this is going to sound so strange, but I've never really gotten into podcasts. And um, <laughs> I... Uh, I, I only listen to two with any regularity at all. The first is uh, Start the Week, which I've cavelled about on this uh, show a number of times. It's this BBC broadcast. It's just incredible. They bring together f- three or four people who have a book coming out. They all talk about each other's books. And it somehow all blends because the host is a genius, this guy named Andrew Marr. So, uh, so what was the question exactly? What's your second podcast besides Start the Week? Oh, the second podcast is, is going to make me sound like a hopeless Anglophile. But um, the show Robert Elms that... Um, which is actually a radio show that does a, it's a daily radio show in London that cuts down to a one hour, 40 minute podcast. It's highlights from the week. And he's just the kind of real Londoner, I think South Londoner by birth, who is uh, a great radio host. He's a great interviewer. And the show is really devoted to people's relationship to London. And Jody Rosen put me onto it. And he's just so companionable. And he was one of these guys who grew up in the 70s and in the music scene of London. So it has that as its anchor. His most common guest would be, you know, a a lesser known member of the Rolling Stones coming on and Talking, talking about, about their favorite haberdashery in Camden it, 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 or something exa- like that. It, it's, it's so exactly that. Yeah, it's, 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 and it's kind of wonderful. But um, Well, given that you love those two podcasts so much and you do a podcast every week, I mean, this is not a judgy question at all, but why do you mm. think you haven't become, thrown yourself more into the world of podcast listening? Uh, you know, the honest answer is I don't like them very much. <laughs> <laughs> I don't like them for all the reasons I suspect people hate the show <laughs> those who hate the mm-hmm. show hate it um format is too loose and too inconclusive and opinionated without substance i mean i hate to say all these things because they're exactly what people would say about me but oddly enough it's just not a medium that i've connected with yet i mean bizarre as that is i don't know it's so funny steve because i feel like i have a dual response i, I in some ways i really sympathize and i think longtime listeners of the show who for whatever reason don't hate the sounds of our voices will recognize maybe, or at least certainly I've identified this pattern in myself. I am an editor. For, like I, Fundamentally, as a person, I'm an editor. And I really enjoy when a fine-tuned machine is compressed and economical and every part of it is doing a perfect thing. And the whole thing just feels like it's been shaped in a thoughtful, perfect way to be a mechanism that produces a, a, the response that you want. Like, I remember that I freaked out about how much I loved the movie Zombieland, which is kind of the random zombie thriller that introduced me and Dana to Jesse Eisenberg. Uh, I already knew Jesse Eisenberg. Or at least, but Zombieland is great. At least furthered our love for him. But, like, that was a that was just a such an economical, perfect pleasure package. Like it, it, it was a, it was a taut little device. It was maybe 80, 90 minutes. It was very short, very satisfying. And yet I love podcasts and I love both listening to them. And, and I like a thing that happens to us sometimes in our segments that I think the looseness of the form allows that's actually quite valuable, which is, which is kind of the flip side of what you described. It's not the furtherance and presentation of taut little mechanistic Rube Goldberg arguments and experiences that are designed to create a perfect thing. I mean, Serial, for example, the the kind of highly produced podcasts that are beginning to emerge, you know, from a host of players, including including some from Panoply. Um, those are shows that that are packaged and produced and designed in a very specific way, and they're valuable. But there's a comfort with ambiguity, with nuance. And with intellectual exploration and discovery that I think you hear in the best of the loose shows, um, that's really fun to hear and to go along with. And I feel like in our segments, the segments that I have the most fun in and the shows that I find the most satisfying are when we all come in and we have a set of feelings about a thing, but we don't know quite what they are. 
And I feel like when I figure out through conversation with the two of you and through hearing what you guys say and think helps me to figure out what I think and helps me advance my understanding of an issue or the world. That's very satisfying to experience. It's really fun to talk to you guys. But I think it's also satisfying to listen to. And I enjoy this in other shows I like as well. When you hear that moment of intellectual or critical discovery as it happens and hear those ideas bang off of each other in real time, um, I like that. I have to go with you, Julia. I like it, too. And I'm glad that we're making some version of it that other people like. (laughs) I hope they keep on liking it. Steve, will I get you to change your tune or no? Podcasts suck. And we do one. I... I need to finish my book, and then I need to bring new things into my media diet. All right. We'll report back in our Colin show next year on whether Steve has learned to love podcasts. It's a running joke on Script Notes, my my current first listen go-to show that uh, Craig Mazin, one of the hosts, has never listened to a podcast and will never listen to a podcast. So uh, you're in you're in uh, good company as the as the podcast loathing podcaster, Steve. I love it. All right. Well, I think one last question. Let's listen to uh, let's listen to one from Kevin. Hi, I'm Kevin from Dallas, Texas, and I was calling to ask Steve, since he's been so positive about the subjects of the show recently, what piece of culture he hated the most from 2015. <laughs> I love this question because I feel like this year we've had like Day Glow Steve or we've had My Little Pony Steve or something. <laughs> like Steve, Brony. He, lo- he loved Creed. He loved the Rocky remake. He loved Diary of a Teenage Girl. He loved Jessica Jones. He loved Master of None. Like I feel like the last three months, just every week there's some rant. Oh, he loved Catastrophe. I think he liked You're the Worst or did you hate You're the Worst? He might hate, hate, hate You're your, your the Worst. <laughs> Phew, he's still Steve. But in any event, there, there's been like so many things we've encountered where Steve's been like, what a great work of pop culture. And I... The, I, I the, gr- the grinder, not least among them. Oh, yeah, and the grinder. You do have to go back. And, and Magic Mike XXL, he all but venerated. Well, by the way, is a, fr- a freaking masterpiece. I mean, <laughs> so, like, Steve, A, have you been body snatched and replaced <laughs> with alt Steve who likes things? Or B, is culture better? And C, let's answer Kevin's actual question of was there something you hated? Well, taking them in reverse order, there was something I hated this year commandingly, and that was myself. But um, I think that that left room for enormous amounts of affection for other things. So as I reckon with uh, my own self-loathing, this new alt-Steve opens up to the world of great culture. Um, But secondly, I think it was a really good year. I think the the general quality, I, I think something has happened more than just the golden age of TV, which we've talked to death, which is real and involves a super high quality of, of um, fresh dramatic material on a week-to-week basis. But something else is going on, which is that I think that the change that happened via the big short, that happened, you know, via the blow-off of the, uh, you know, and the credit crunch and the um, and the financial collapse has worked its way really into the culture. I mean, it did, it started right away, but over the past several years has worked its way in deeply. And a kind of shit-eating high self-regard on the part of people making culture and a kind of smug lack of empathy that I think characterized a lot of American popular culture for close to 20 years has, has been wrung out. And there are people not only doing really, really excellent, really clever, really sharp work. And uh, Aziz Ansari would be a perfect example of this. His show really is about the capacity to put yourself in someone else's shoe. I feel like we're starting to see that as a large and deep trend in American culture. That the, the it, you know, it's one thing for pop culture to have a high quotient of stupidity. That That's a human constant. It's when that stupidity is triumphant and smug that I think the culture is is degraded. And that triumphalism and smugness, I think, has really wrung itself out of the system. So there's more to admire. I think that's right. I mean, people keep talking about peak TV and how much TV there is and the, you know, the the rise of the experimental streaming services, the Hulus that'll salvage a Mindy, the Netflixes that'll make a Kimmy Schmidt possible, uh, you know, Amazon Instant, all the rest, the Transparents, the Masters of None, the, you know, these shows about different subaltern experiences to revive a word from college uh, made mass media horrific for us all. Um, 
as a real fundamental change in the economic business model. And they're right. I think I saw a stat. This is the kind of ill-founded, half-prepped sourcing that you don't like in your podcast, Steve. But I did read somewhere that I don't remember in the last couple of days that the sheer number of television shows, scripted television shows there is to consume right now is something like double what it was six or eight years ago. So there's just more out there and more kinds of things, more experimental things. Oh, My Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, that's like to me the ultimate, I think this was Willa Paskin's argument, but the ultimate peak TV show where it's just like, this is a crazy fucking thing. It's crazy that this exists. <laughs> like, and like you would think there would be three people that want to watch that show, but I it found an audience. There may be. I mean, they did actually get an order for the back half of the season, I believe. So kudos to them. But yeah, I don't know who is actually watching that show, but I'm watching it. I'm happy. I'm, I just hope the era doesn't end. It sort of feels slightly bubbly, like eventually there will be a reckoning and it, t- it takes a lot of money to make all these things. And famously, I mean, Netflix doesn't release any kind of numbers about how its shows perform, like the fact that Jessica Jones exists and is discussed by a small subset of the internet and podcast space that we inhabit, like, what does it mean for that to be a hit show? There's no there's no way to know. Eventually, and I think Nielsen is trying to crack the Netflix viewing numbers and Netflix is trying to evade the Nielsen scanners and, and you know, they won't even give back to creators the numbers on how many people are watching those Netflix shows. So I think, I suspect, I fear there will be a reckoning and the thousand flowers of the streaming era will be reduced ash. Well, but. you're you're comparing this moment we're in now with, with TV and alternate viewing platforms with the early days of the internet, I think is very accurate because it seems like similarly to, you know, those sort of pre, um, you know, pre-Google days, there's a, as a frontier, there's kind of an economic and creative frontier that people can settle and create strange little um, new communities and settlements on, you know, and at some point, big giants like Disney and Amazon are going to come find ways to grab as many chunks of that frontier as they can. Well, no, they're doing it already. And that's why even even in such a high-cost, high-production-value medium as television, you still have these things because the big mega companies are directing their resources in these directions in order to stake out territory while while this kind of unfreezing transformation is happening. But eventually, I fear it will consolidate. So enjoy Alt-Steve for now, team. I'm sure it'll all be Drek again in a few years, just corporate Drek. When we're just alternating between a Marvel movie and a Star Wars movie every week and we never talk about anything else. <laughs> All right. Well, now is the moment in our podcast where we endorse. But for, before that, Julia, we've got a message to uh, deliver. Yeah, I just wanted to take this year-end show as an opportunity to remind all of our longtime listeners for whom we are at Wednesday Morning Habit uh, that if they have not yet joined Slate Plus, they should join Slate Plus every week. We do a whole extra segment. Uh, we get to grill Steve about what was in his book. We get to grill Dana about her forthcoming book. Uh, we are going to talk today about whether we meditate and why uh, and what kind of nothingness our mantras focus on or something. Can you tell that I don't meditate? Maybe. We did an interview a couple weeks ago with the composer of The Big Short. We do all kinds of extra segments. So if you like this show and if, as one of our call-in listeners said today, you wish that your commute was longer so that it could fill it up or that the show was longer so that you could have more of it, you should consider joining Slate Plus so you can hear our bonus segments, hear a special ad-free version of the show, and of course, get access to all kinds of special multi-part Slate Academies. We're launching a Great Books Academy with Laura Miller next year, so if you've been enjoying her guest spots on the show, you should definitely sign up for Slate Plus so you can join, basically just be in a book club with Laura Miller, which I think is... That was my long con in hiring her to work at Slate, was to just get to be in a book club with Laura Miller. Um, So if it's been on your to-do list for a while... Take this moment of holiday lull and join up. Go to slate.com slash plus. Okay, now we're ready to endorse Dana. What do you have? So this week, sadly, the great cinematographer Haskell Wexler died at the age of 93. And my endorsement, which is sort of tripartite, involves Haskell Wexler. I think that, first of all, everyone who doesn't know who Haskell Wexler is should go look at his IMDb page and find themselves a movie shot by Haskell Wexler to watch, because he has quite simply been the cinematographer of some of the best and best-looking American movies of all time. And I'll read a few titles of movies he worked on, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, for which he won, I believe, the last Oscar that a black-and-white movie ever got for cinematography, uh, In the Heat of the Night, uh, Medium Cool, for which he was also the director, a very important breakthrough political film of the late 60s, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Conversation, mm. Terrence Malick's Days of Heaven. It goes on and on and on. He worked. He had an incredibly long and productive career. So one of my suggestions is go and find a movie by Haskell Wexler and watch it. Um, my second is read the obituary, Fascinating Life of Haskell Wexler in The New York Times. And then also, I was lucky enough a couple of years ago at Ebert Fest, the, the festival Roger Ebert created in his hometown of Champaign-Urbana, Illinois, to see Haskell Wexler in person. I guess he would have been about, what, 
91 at the time, getting interviewed by Matt Zoller-Seitz, who is now the TV critic for New York Magazine, talking about Days of Heaven, which had just screened in a beautiful brand new print at Ebert Fest. And Wexler sat down for half an hour with Matt Seitz and talked about the experience of shooting Days of Heaven with Terrence Malick, which was beset by, if you've seen Days of Heaven, you can imagine, by all sorts of, you know, natural catastrophes. And how did they shoot the locust storm? And how did they shoot the big fire scene at the end? And how did he make everything look so beautiful and outlandishly gorgeous? And it's a great conversation about cinematography and cinema with a fascinating guy. So that's the three-part recommendation. Watch a Haskell Wexler movie, read the obituary in the Times, and we'll put a link on our show page, and go on YouTube and just look up Days of Heaven Q&A, Ebert Fest 2013. We'll put a link to this, too, and find that conversation with Matt Seitz and Haskell Wexler about Days of Heaven. Oh, that's so cool. Julia, what do you have? I want to endorse a particular review by Pete Wells, the current Times uh, critic. One of the things that has marked Pete Wells' tenure as critic is this kind of showstopper piece where he goes somewhere unexpected or flames someone delightfully. Uh, And he has come out this week with an ode to Senior Frogs, the like beach party staple. He went to the Times Square version and reviewed it and produced a particularly Pete Wellsian hilarious escapade of what is so great and fun about Senior Frogs. Isn't he the one who wrote that Guy Fieri blast? He wrote the awesome Guy Fieri blast. He wrote another blast of some Mexican place uh, with terrible service earlier this year. He's just... I mean, a food critic is its own kind of criticism. I know we've had Adam Platt, the New York food critic, on to discuss the profession. It's a tricky job. And it's, I think, tricky to do, particularly at a place like The Times, where you're fundamentally writing for a national audience and a local audience simultaneously. Like what Pete Wells thinks of the serious new Italian place matters very much to the economics of that restaurant and to a set of fancy, wealthy New Yorkers who get to go to serious new Italian places. But like... The whole country doesn't really need to read about that, mostly. So he's delightfully mixed it up with a set of pieces that are more about food and about restaurant going as a thing. And he's found ways into that as a writer that I really admire. And he's just he's just really fun to read. So I, I commend you to the work of Pete Wells and particularly to his recent review of Senior Frogs in Times Square. All right. Being the maestro of consistency that I am, I'm going to endorse a podcast. Um, <laughs> Not one of the week. two that you've listened to. So should we presume you've never listened to it? <laughs> um, but this is different, though. This isn't a bunch of uh, uh, super educated bloviators uh, sitting around examining their own navel lint. This is uh, this is uh, a very popular podcast. It's not a super uh, original gesture on my part, but I had a long drive uh, for Christmas this year to go see my dad. And um, so the podcast I listen to is Limetown. And it's, uh, I think, very popular. It shot up to the top of the iTunes charts. It's basically a a fictionalized version of Serial in which a young woman reporter modeled on Sarah Koenig goes back to revisit this mystery, this 10-year-old mystery of an entire research town, effectively, of 300 people that disappeared overnight without a trace. And at first, I was skeptical. I thought, "Mm, seemed to be some holes in the story, and on and on and on. But over the course of it, I thought that they had done something truly original and thoughtful and really interesting. I thought it was a great use of the medium. And uh, I think it's six or eight episodes. And uh, by the end, I was totally gripped by it. And I think it's taken off and is a huge success. As I understand it, it was two fairly young film school grads who... You know, didn't have the connections or the money to put together a large-scale film project, but understood that in the era of podcasting, they could enact a kind of world War of the Worlds type script and do something original, and they really did. And I ended up enjoying it enormously. So, Limetown, check it out. I'm very curious. I'm sure some of our listeners have encountered this. Would love to hear what you uh, thought of it. All righty. Uh, thank you, Dana. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, Julia. Thank you, sir. May 2016 be as full of Steve-friendly things as 2015 was. Which reminds me, actually, I suppose we should let listeners know, Steve is uh, leaving us for much or most of January to go finish that book about the 80s that we've been hearing about. When we next hear his voice on the show, he will be done. Right, he's, Steve? He's forging in the smithy of his soul, the uncreated conscience of his race. I'm so glad that's not my January. That sounds like such a fucking pain in the butt. Good luck, man. 
<laughs> I hear the I hear the guffaws uh, all across the four corners of the globe that they've heard this one before, a book leaf culminating in an actual manuscript. But this time, uh, I get vaporized. They they press the red button if February one they don't have a manuscript. So um, send me well well wishes and uh, thoughts and prayers in my direction because I'm going to need them. It's, uh, it's, think about it's it this time, way. People. Let's think about it in terms of the force. The whole sprawled Culture Gabfest listenership is going to be beaming force <laughs> waves towards you to help you finish your book, Steve. <laughs> it's all, it's, it's go forth, young Jedi. Complete, complete uh. your studies. But Dana and I will hold down the fort and we will reconvene. And we'll February. find some great guests in your, in your absence, but we'll miss you. Well, glorious. I'll see you on Groundhog Day, appropriately enough. All right. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Zach Dinerstein. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. The Culture Gap Fest is part of the Panoply Network. Check out our entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. And our Twitter feed is at slatecultfest. For Julia Turner and Dana Stevens, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We'll see you soon. Happiness can feel transcendent and abstract, but sometimes it's the little practical things that give us the biggest happiness boost. I'm Gretchen Rubin, author of the best-selling books, The Happiness Project and Better Than Before. Each week on my podcast, Happier, my sister Elizabeth and I talk about things big and small you can do to add more happiness to your everyday life. Things like the one-minute rule, the rule that any small task you can do in less than a minute, you should do without delay. Search for Happier with Gretchen Rubin. Onward and upward.